You know, you know we have people in our church who have lost their spouses. And it is a challenge. It is painful. It is grievous. And as you heard those two ladies say, the, the needs don't go away. In fact, sometimes they get even more complicated as years go by. So I think, it again, uh, I really appreciate Annie and Evelyn willing to do that. We have several widows in our church, and um, they all could have said some of the same things. But I really appreciate them uh, helping us to get into the life and get behind the scenes of what it's like to be a widow, the pain that goes with that. So let's be alert to that as a church. Let's be sensitized to that. Let's be aware of that. And for those who are missing their spouse, let's step in a little more deeply and let's help and let's be the church to them. I really appreciate Rachel reading that text. She had by far, Rachel, you had by far the most difficult reading yet in this series. Uh, the names are, some of them are just difficult and we're going to, we're going to cover that in a minute, but uh, I hope you have your Bibles out. So get your Bibles open and while you're opening them up, let me address the online family. Thank you for joining us. And I'm going to ask you at home or wherever you're watching it, I can't see through the camera, so I don't know if you're doing this, but can you get your Bibles open as well? Let's be a church, whether it's gathered together where we are brothers and sisters in this room or our brothers and sisters, even around the world, I get sometimes messages from people in other countries that they've tuned into these um these services and they're encouraged and i'm thankful for that as well so wherever you are you've got to have your bible open and it's got to be open to acts chapter six so let's go let's go there if we can we're about to see the early church grapple with two groups of women that were in the same exact struggle and friends, I have learned that there is rarely a lull in the challenges that a church faces. Can you amen that? Some of you can't, or you don't want to. Whatever. It's true, nonetheless, because we've got three enemies. And I'm really surprised sometimes that, church, that Christians forget this, that we have three enemies that are trying to destroy our faith. And they're trying to destroy the church. And those enemies are the devil and his legion of demons. That's one. Number two, we've got a world system that opposes the kingdom of God. It's called the kingdom or the domain of darkness, according to Colossians. It opposes, it works against the kingdom of God very actively. And we've got the spiritual flesh. That's the part of us that still has not yet been redeemed or the part of us that rather still opposes god and god's desires and they've got a remarkable energy these three enemies of the church these three enemies of the christian the devil the world system and your flesh a remarkable synergy they've got a cooperative spirit they work well together and they have well-developed strategies do you know that the devil has put into play strategies for you individually that he launched generations ago in your family line. Do you know that? Do you know that the devil's not about the short game, if I could use a golfing metaphor? He's not about the putting and the green. He's about the long game. He is very diabolically patient. 
And if you don't believe that, or if you are unaware of that, then you will be caught unaware of that, and there will be strategies that the devil unleashes against you that actually work. Well, in Acts, in this passage, or rather in this whole uh, these, all these chapters so far, all three of these enemies have been working together in opposition of the church. They've been seen in the religious elite, you remember that, last week? As they imprisoned all of the apostles. Where do you think that was motivated from? That was the enemy motivating them. They've been seen, these three enemies, and the, and the partnership of Satan with Ananias and Zephyrus. These enemies have been seen in one view after another so far, and they're going to be seen today in this passage, in a group or two groups of very needy widows. So here we go. I've got a few points for you, and we're going to work right through this passage. And I'm hoping to encourage us that the church is unconquerable. The devil will not overcome God's church. Number one, here's the problem. It's the beginning of a division in the church. There is a problem, and the problem is the beginning of a division in the church. So we're in Acts 6. Are you looking there with me? And the church is so fast growing that Luke stopped trying to give numbers. Luke wrote the book of Acts. He's not even giving numbers anymore. It is growing so quickly, and all of a sudden, a division has begun. Now, we're going to get to verse 1 in a moment, but let me give you a little bit of preparation for it. I want you to listen really carefully to this, if you would. Well, I hope you hear this. Disunity in a Christian marriage will rob your witness of Jesus Christ. Are you hearing that? This is by and far the majority of what I do other than preaching in the church is I counsel. And I'm telling you that disunity in your marriage will rob you of your witness in Christ. Disunity in your family will do the same thing. Disunity in a church will mute the church's witness. Listen, there is a premium in the church for unity. We must stay unified. Now listen, that doesn't mean uniformity. That doesn't mean that all of you have to think like Tim Ackley on every view. That would be a terrible church, to be quite honest with you. There is wonder, I heard that. There is wonder. I set myself up. I don't know why I do that. There is wonderful beauty in diversity. So it's not about uniformity. It's not that we're all being made to think the same way. And it's not that we're manipulated into agreeing with each other. And there are a lot of churches that try to do that. They guilt, they shame, they threaten. They manipulate until you will agree to agree with what they believe. That's not unity. In order to fight the right fight, however, we need to wage spiritual war. But they need to be 
that war needs to be against our spiritual enemies. And in the modern church, it's often against each other. Now, I guess I, su I suppose I should use this platform. I don't normally do this, but I should use this platform to tell you that uh, in case you're wondering, because I, I'm so worried that people are going to be sending me something on Facebook and I've, they don't know that I've deactivated my account. I don't want to be on Facebook. Now, you do whatever you want to do. But I am so tired of watching not just Cornerstone, and I don't even mean this as a pejorative statement against our church. Not at all. I have a lot of Christian friends outside of Cornerstone. I'm so tired that the least little thing, the least little issue erupts in such argumentations. I can't stand that. It's easier for me not to be on it. So call me and we will work through anything. We'll meet together. I love meeting with you. But if you post any article on any forum and watch what happens, even if they are supposedly Christians, it is not four to five posts away from descending into debate and anger. Why is that? What's fueling that? Yes, there is sometimes healthiness in chewing on things and seeing things a little bit differently and having the courage to be able to present an alternate view. I think that's very healthy. But what needs to dominate and inundate that is love. If you want unity, then it's got to be made of love. And quite honestly, we're not very good at this. The devil does not have a lot of strategies, friends. He doesn't. He doesn't have unlimited plans and ploys. He has just a few strategies. He's just really good at them. He's really accomplished at using them. He's diabolically an expert at them. And one of the greatest strategies that the devil has, and you see it constantly coming into the church. Are you hearing this? It's disunity. That is one of the greatest strategies that he has. And in Acts that we're about to see, the church is growing. It's growing so fast. And with this speed of growth comes problems and challenges. And you've got to be able to resolve them. And if you don't resolve them quickly, they grow into schisms and divisions. And we're about to see one begin. Look at verse 1. Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, you see they're growing so quickly, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because, here it is, their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. This is a major thing in the ancient world. This is huge. A woman without a husband faced hardship, exposure, and potential death from hunger, greedy predators that are trying to get her home, get her possessions. This is why the psalmist declares, though, that the father of the fatherless and protector of widows is God in his holy habitation. Listen, if you ever, and I trust that none of you ever will, but if you ever try to take advantage of a widow, you're going to have God as your enemy. He protects them. He becomes their husband. He gives widows a special love. I am absolutely convinced 
that a woman in a healthy marriage is not probably going to experience. There are shades of love that God has. And in this fast-growing church are two groups of full-blooded Jews. You've got the Hellenists and you've got the Hebrew Jews. Hebrew Jews were those who have always lived in the land of Israel. They've never lived outside of it. And they're maintaining strict Jewish customs. They spoke Aramaic, which is the modern version of the Hebrew language. Hellenist Jews are those that grew up outside of Israel. For whatever reason, they left the land of Israel to live somewhere else in the world, and they picked up Greek customs, the Greek culture, the Greek language. And now they're coming back into Israel to live, which, by the way, was not uncommon. It was very common, and it still is to this day, that when Jewish people get very, very much in their declining years, they will often move back into the land of Israel. They want to die in the land of Israel. That was as true then as it is today. And all of a sudden, prejudice and accusations of favoritism begin to fly. And one group, look at your text, look at verse 1, you look at the preposition, one group turned against the other. That's a very powerful word. This isn't just a complaint of hunger. This is an accusation of favoritism. This is an accusation of lovelessness. Do you remember a moment ago I told you that unity is built on love? It's powered by the Holy Spirit, but it's built by love. This is an accusation of lovelessness called favoritism. Favoritism is always lovelessness. And the Hellenist Jews, remember those who lived outside of Israel and came back, they felt that their widows were not being cared for like the Hebrew Jews' widows were. It's the beginning of disunity in the church. So what are the apostles going to do? Well, they do the most unthinkable thing. I never would have probably thought of this. They actually call the congregational meeting. I mean, who likes to go to congregational meetings? That's what they did. Point number two, the solution, our deacons, the minister of mercies. Look at the congregational meeting, verse two. And the 12 apostles summoned the full number of the disciples. They got the whole church together. Undoubtedly, they went into the temple. And they gathered in Solomon's portico. can handle upwards of 10,000 people. They gathered the whole church together. And they said to the church, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Now that sounds pretty snobby. Let's try to do something that is just incredibly kind and withhold judgment for a moment. Maybe it's not as snobby as it sounds. The apostles are explaining, here's our priority. And the danger is that we're going to be distracted. We are being distracted from it. Here's what we're called and commissioned to do. We're called to preach the word of God, not to serve tables now immediately our ears modern ears hear this with like a restaurant wait staff in mind but that's not what it meant to serve tables in that greek language it wasn't like a waitress at a restaurant but rather it was a financial phrase it referred to a table where you collected funds 
for the needy. It was a benevolence table. In fact, you're probably somewhat familiar with it from John chapter 2, verse 15. Don't you remember when Jesus was so angry at all of the terrible stuff happening into his father's house? And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. These were the tables of which the money was placed so they could distribute it to those in need. You see, the needs had grown. You know what it was at one point is if you sold a piece of property and you brought that gift money, whatever portion of it, all of it or some of it, you brought it to the apostles, you would lay it at their feet. And when you laid it at their feet, really, friends, it's nothing different than when you put money in a basket that's being passed in front of you or online giving to a church or in that basket in the back of the sanctuary it's the same thing here is money that belongs to god he's given it to me to manage i'm giving it to you will you use it for ministry and the apostles have the job of taking that money and giving it out to those who had need so that everybody had it all in common there were no needy people in the church that's how it works but the church had grown so fast. It had grown so large that the apostles could not administrate it. They could not keep up with the need. Not the money coming in or the money going out. Now I want to tell you something about Israel. And this was authored by God. The Jewish people had a very, very developed benevolence ministry. And it started with the synagogue. Synagogues were houses of prayer and instruction. And Jesus, you know, here's the argument. Here, here's what my fastest argument to the most common statement that I hear. And it so drives me nuts and it hurts to hear this, but I hear it all the time. Well, a Christian doesn't need to go to church. My church is the woods. My church is the few people that gather every week in my life group. You just don't understand Jesus. You don't know Jesus. Jesus had his life group. He had his disciples, and every single Saturday, where would you find Jesus? You would find him in the synagogue, worshiping with the Jewish people, giving and receiving instruction, and praying to his Father. That's the value of church. You come together. We come together as the people of God to worship our God, and to humbly sit below instruction, and to walk out of here having kind of reset, and ready to go again. That's the power of church. That's the, the power of gathering for fellowship and for worship. That's what Jesus did. Well, he did this every Saturday. They did it in the synagogues. And in the synagogues, they would actually send two people out every Friday, all through Jerusalem, all through their towns, into the market, door to door. And they would collect mainly money and goods for the needy and it would be distributed later on friday just before the sabbath and they called it the baskets that's where you get the phrase the origin past the baskets but then they had another 
offering that they would do. Temporary needs were met, and those with permanent disabilities were given enough food for 14 meals, enough food for two weeks. That all came from the basket. Here's the second one. In addition to house-to-house collections, they went back to these same houses, and they asked people to meet more pressing needs called the tray. This is for people who got a leg amputated. This is for a person like a widow who no longer had an income coming in. She's forced to beg the rest of her life. This offering is for the pressing, urgent needs. And again, called the tray. This is how the Jewish people operated. And the early church maintained helping the needy and the widows, selling properties, bringing the money to the apostles, distributing it to all who need. This is why we take offerings, not to pay big salaries to all the the staff. It's to actually help people around the world even. So we've got the word serve here in Acts 6. And what an interesting word it is. It's actually the root word for the word deacon. All right, everybody got that down? You got, this is really important what I'm, about to, what I'm about to teach you. Serve is the root word for the word deacon. Now look it up in the screen for a moment. And look at the Greek word for serves. It's diakonio. Now look at the Greek word for deacon, diakonos. Same root word. And while you don't ever see the word deacon in Acts chapter 6, most or many at least believe this is the origin of what would get even more developed with the Apostle Paul. Because look what you get when you break down the word diakonos. Dia, dia means through. Konos means dust. Do you understand what that means? That means through the dust. Here's what it really means. It means that when a deacon or a person being given a deacon's heart to serve sees a need, they are so urgently wanting to meet that need that they stir the dust in a hurry. That heart has to be in every deacon of every church, or they shouldn't be a deacon. That's what it means to be a deacon. It means you see a need... You don't then hope somebody else meets it. There's an impulse in you that says, I'm going to meet it, and I'm going to do it immediately. If it's within my power, and if it's not within my power, I'm going to help facilitate the meeting of the need. That's a deacon's heart. A deacon-hearted person sees a need, energetically responds to make sure one way or the other that need is going to be met. And so quickly does that deacon-hearted person respond, the dust is stirred by his urgency. The apostles provide the criteria to guide the church in their selections. We've got widows that are not being met. We've got widows that are in need. They need help. We can't do it. We've we've got the responsibility given to us by God to pray and to preach, lead the church as shepherds of God's people. Who's going to do it? So they provide the criteria to guide the church. Look at verse 3. Pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. Why seven? A couple reasons, maybe. 
One, to a Jewish person, the number seven is the number of fullness and completion. Secondly, I think maybe this is the one. It would guarantee that there is somebody on point and on call every day of the week. I'm not really sure. Whatever the reason, each of the seven men had to be believers. They had to be among the church. This is nobody that they're choosing from outside of the church. There's a reason why we don't select board members who don't come to church regularly. They've got to be among the church, among the fellowship, men whose character, gifts, and qualifications were known in the church. And they had to be known for a good name. Look what it says. They've got to have a good reputation. They have to be of good repute. And they had to be full of the Spirit. What's that really mean? Now, this is so big. And yet it's so simple. I would actually write this in your Bibles if I were you. You know what it means to be full of the Spirit? It means to be controlled by the Spirit. If you're full of the devil, then you're controlled by the devil. That was Ananias and Sapphira. But if you're full of the Spirit, you're going to be controlled by the Spirit. Now listen, everybody connect this. If you are controlled by the Spirit, guess what? You're going to be an effective witness for Christ. Men who are deacons need to be an effective witness for Christ. And they had to be full of wisdom, which is, I'm telling you what, our, our deacon men, they are rock solid, full of wisdom. They've got the ability to apply God's truth to practical everyday situations. We've got a bunch of men that are unbelievably good at this. And when we look at this list of seven men that are chosen, now I want you to see this. This absolutely flew over my head until this last week. I've preached out of this, I've studied this, and I never noticed this. Every one of those seven men had Greek names. Friends, that means they're Hellenist Jews. Six of them are. One of them is actually a Gentile who is a proselyte, means he became saved, a Gentile that was converted. What a love this church had. Who chose them? The apostles didn't choose these guys. The congregation choose, chose these guys. What a love that the congregation had. Just think about it. They chose all Hellenist Jews because it was the Hellenist widows that were being neglected. They said, we don't need to put any Hebrew names on here. No Hebrew men. Let's load it up with Hellenist Jews because that's going to really send a message that we care, that we really do love. You want unity? Love is what brings it. And the devil's plan is once again foiled. And then the apostles, verse 6, prayed and laid their hands on them. Laying out of hands signified that they were being set apart, these seven men, and empowered for a special service. And these men, they're to assist the, the apostles in the care of the church. They are to be ministers of mercy in God's church. Now, here's why I want you to pray for your deacons. Because Paul said in 1 Timothy 3, For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus, meaning they become even more effective witnesses. Pray for your deacons. 
Pray that they would stir the dust. Pray that they would have a heart to serve. Pray that they would be full of the Spirit, full of wisdom. They have great reputations. Because I'm going to tell you the most mind-blowing thing that I've said yet. You ready? The best deacon that has ever walked this planet was Jesus Christ. Did you know that? For I have come not to be served, but to serve. That's the word for deacon. And to give my life as a ransom for many. He was a deacon among deacons. He was the man of God. The example for us all. But finally, point number three. What's the result? And we've got the beginnings of a division. We've got the apostles responding to it and the church choosing these seven men. What's the result? Well, the result is this. The church was unified and grew and many were saved. Look at, look at verse 4 with me. The apostles had said, select these seven men. Now look at what verse 4 goes on to say. Then we apostles can spend our time in prayer and teaching the word. Do you want to know what the apostles valued as their greatest ministry? I, I, this is going to be tough for some of you. I, I mean this seriously. It's really tough if you're a big proponent of the centrality of the social gospel, of which I am not. The result was amazing, but the apostles realized their greatest ministry was not the soup kitchen. It was not the moving ministry. It's not the choir. It's not the snow removal ministry. It's the prayer and the teaching and the preaching ministry. And verse 7 says, when they realigned their priorities, the word of God continued to increase. See, Acts 6 provokes an important question. And now we come into the picture. I mean, all of this was just an overview to get to this literal moment in the message and here's the question i'm asking is a good thing friends keeping you from the best thing all right now you gotta have the discipline to interact with this you've got to have the discipline to interact with this because listen it's super easy to sit in a sermon and just not really do much because i don't know what's going on in your mind but if you want the value of gospel preaching, then you've got to bring it down into your heart. And the way that you bring it into your heart is to ask your heart questions. Am I pursuing the good things in life, but is it keeping me from getting to the best things? See, it was good for the apostles to take care of these widows, but the best was to preach and pray. What good things might be keeping you from the best, and what adjustments do you need to make in life? Listen, it's a good thing to go to the gym. It's a good thing to make your body healthy, but the best thing is to exercise your faith and make it stronger. It's a good thing to relax on a beach. It's a good thing to get to a mountain cabin, but the best thing is that your rest will lead you to a reinvigorated service for our God. It's a good thing to have a strategy and a process in our church. But does it lead to the great faith in a God who repeatedly says what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined? That's what God does. He does what God wants to do, not what we strategize for him to do. 
So if author Jim Collins was right, the good is the enemy of the great, then what is the great that awaits your pursuit? The first importance, as the Apostle Paul called it. Well, here's my answer for you. I think the great thing is the witnessing of the gospel. The good news that Jesus in his death and resurrection has overcome death, made payment for our sin, and brought us into his father's family. To me, there's nothing better than to declare that to an unsaved man or woman and watch it gain traction in their hearts and they accept Christ, they serve Christ, and they get saved. There's nothing better in my mind than that. And prayer calls on God's presence and power to help us proclaim the good news. And witnessing is the means of that proclamation. Every one of us would profit by just pondering, what's my prayer life like? Are we prayerful or prayerless? Let me do surgery really briefly on your heart, and you can do this on mine too, and I have been doing it this week. If you want to see if there is pride in your life, I'm going to tell you the fastest way to find it. Examine your prayer life. If you want to discern how well you love people, examine how often you pray for them. If you want to gauge the strength of your faith, well then take a look at your life of prayer. Prayer is the great surgery. It will unzip you in a heartbeat, and God will show you exactly what he's been looking at all this time. If you're full of pride, if I'm full of pride, and we're full of self-sufficiency, expect a weak prayer life. Why pray? What does it matter? I'll make it happen. But if you're broken... And you truly understand how little you can do on your own and in your own strength, trust me, your prayer life will be unbelievably strong. An anemic prayer life is a mark of a vain and prideful Christian. Is that you? Is that me? Come on, let's be honest. Let's be a church where people are just gut-level honest. We have an anemic prayer life. Well, if inwardly you're nodding your head going, yes, I do, and you feel bad about it. Listen, all I'm telling you is that you're full of pride. That's your evidence of it. And the moment that you begin confessing and repenting and worshiping, and God drains that pride out of you and humbles you, your prayer life is going to soar. It will be so satisfying. If you don't get 45 minutes or 30 minutes with the Lord in private prayer, you're going to waste your day. You're going to feel like, I missed the best part of my day. Maybe we could just reflect on just how much great we are missing in our pursuit of the good. You know, our church tends to be stronger in the word than in prayer. But the apostles were faithful to both, to both of them. Look at verse 7. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. If you want to see our church, and friends, please listen. 
If you want to see in your own life that people come to know Jesus, the first thing I'm going to tell you is look at your prayer life. Because if you have an anemic prayer life, trust me, you're not going to lead people to the Lord. You're not going to have the power. Oh, you'll, you might say the words. You might tell them about Jesus, but you're going to be so frustrated. Why does nobody put their faith in Jesus? It's because you have a weak prayer life. You're built on self-sufficiency. And the Spirit of God says, I don't have control of you. Until I have control of you, I cannot use you. God's enemies, as I close, are bent on destroying his church. God's enemies are bent on destroying God's church. And disunity is one of their most prevalent, pervasive strategies. And wise church leaders lead well by creating solutions that provide for good while pursuing the great. And the great is always the proclamation of the gospel and the salvation of souls. And the means of seeing that happen is for us to be a church that loves well, prays well, and then witnesses well. Is that the church you want to be? Can you amen that? You want to be that church? Listen, I'm going to end with this statement. Then you have to be that Christian. If you want to be that church, you have to be that Christian. Now, I told you I was going to end on that, but I would be neglecting my pastoral duty. I have to end on this. What do you do with that? I mean, what do you do with this message? How do you walk out of here? I'm just going to tell you what I often tell you. And this goes for me as well as for you. Sometimes, even while I'm preaching, I'm convicting myself, or I'm being convicted, rather. And I'm convicted. If you're seeing an area that God's putting his finger on in your life, the only right response is to confess, repent, and worship. And if, while you're listening to this sermon, the Spirit of God is echoing in you, you have a vibrant prayer life, you've got a powerful witness, you've got a love for people, then praise God, because the only way that ever happened in your life is because God did the work. So praise Him. If it's not there, repent, confess, repent, and worship Him. But if it is there, praise Him. And then invest your life in helping the rest of us. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for Acts chapter 6. God, it is such an, ex just an exciting passage. Lord, it's a picture of what the church can do when disunity comes. Lord, I so want that to be our church. And in many ways it is, and God, I'm so thankful for that. I'm so giving you the credit and the glory for that. But Lord, we want to be a church that is praying so deeply. And Lord, that our witness is so powerful that we're being controlled by the Spirit, that we have a good reputation, that we have wisdom, the ability to know practically what to do in any situation. And when we're a church like that, made up of Christians like that, Lord, Cornerstone is going to be getting the gospel to the ends of the earth. 
Lord, that's what we want. Would you help every one of us? Lord, please help everyone, me included. Lord, know what to do as a result, as a response to this message. Either to confess and repent and worship or to praise you for what you've done. God, teach us. Help us to become the men and women that you want us to be and be the church that is being powerfully used by you. Let us love well. Let us serve well. Let us pray well. And let us witness well. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.